The year is 1904 in New York City, and the Orthodox rabbi Mordechai Kaplan is having doubts. He's struggling with theological questions, such as the nature of God, the purpose of prayer, and the divine origin of the Hebrew Bible. He's also wrestling with whether and how traditional Jewish practice can coexist with modern society. Above all is a looming question, how to make Jewish identity meaningful. In this modern age, in America, in a land of endless opportunity and prosperity, why be Jewish? Kaplan posed the challenge like this. Quote, Since the Jewish people no longer has for the Jews the transcendent significance it had for its forebears, what besides a rapidly weakening sentimental attachment is there to hold him to it? Will he not avail himself of the opportunities for leadership in the many walks of life which take him far from Jewish associations and interests? On the other hand, what opportunity does affiliation with the Jewish people give the average Jew to feel that he is an efficient cause, that he counts for something in the world, that he is one of a social unit which is making history? What sense of augmented power does he experience as a member of the Jewish people? End quote. Instead of suppressing these doubts, Mordechai Kaplan pursued them. They led him to develop a whole new idea, that Judaism is a civilization. Kaplan argued that Judaism, rather than being a religion, or an ethnicity, or a nationality, or a culture, or a peoplehood, it was actually all of those things, what he called an evolving religious civilization. He argued for what he termed a reconstruction of American Jewish life, one in which the Jewish human is centered. Jews are brought together not only or even primarily through religious ritual, but also through art and literature and history and social organizations, the things that impart identity in a modern, secular society like America. Kaplan articulated a vision that was almost a wholesale reworking on the Jewish idea, one that many Jews today subscribe to, though they don't realize where it comes from. As the great rabbi David Hartman sums it up, for Kaplan, quote, religion is meant to serve the Jewish people and not that the Jewish people are meant to serve religion, end quote. That, says Kaplan, is the key to Jewish vitality and survival. So Mordechai Kaplan is our final Jewish thinker for this series, season six, 10 Jewish philosophers you ought to know. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. By the early 1900s, there were several denominations of Jewish practice and belief, which was a new feature of Jewish history. Primarily, we're talking about the big three, which are still dominant today. The Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform movements. The Orthodox adhered closest to traditional Jewish beliefs and practice, mostly unchanged for centuries. The Reform movement emphasized less religious dogma and more the sense of Jewish cultural identity. The Conservative movement straddled the middle ground. A quick and dirty summary is that the Orthodox most strictly observe halakha, Jewish law, while Reform is the least strict. Conservative is in between. Mordechai Kaplan had misgivings about all three approaches. He was born in 1881 in what was then the Russian Empire, today Lithuania, he came to the United States with his family at the age of nine and was raised in an Orthodox tradition, but by parents who were nonconformists. By the time he was ordained as an Orthodox rabbi, he was already wrestling with doubts and questions and critiques. 
he was writing at a time of enormous upheaval. American Judaism was struggling with an assimilation crisis, as the children of recent immigrants were the first to be born and raised as full Americans. The Great Depression was upon us, was a financial disaster for Jewish life that then became a spiritual one. As individual Jews could no longer pay for the various aspects of Jewish life, synagogues, schools, and other institutions shrank or went bankrupt, in turn leaving Jews with nowhere to go. Barebones survival was on everyone's minds, but Kaplan was thinking that a wholesale rejuvenation was needed instead. And he was also part of a liberalizing trend across the American religious and philosophical scene, everything from the idea of the Protestant social gospel to the Scopes trial on evolution in 1925, all of which was about trying to fit religion into the ideas of democracy, pluralism, science, and tolerance. American democracy required individual and collective freedom, and the freedom of expression that religious dogmatism is generally opposed to. At the same time, Kaplan didn't think that the Jewish world he was looking at was up to this challenge, at least not in the way that would preserve Jewish communal life in America in the long run. The big three denominations, to varying degrees, thought they could be compatible with modern American society, but Kaplan didn't think they could. When he looked at the landscape of Jewish life, he saw a multitude of organizations that were solely dedicated to their own limited constituencies, and not the Jewish people as a whole, not Judaism in its whole totality. Kaplan saw in Orthodox Judaism that it had created a doctrine of infallibility. It so revered the Jewish past as the absolute truth that it closed off all avenues for change. What he said in 1920 was, quote, no regard for the worldview of the contemporary mind, end quote. It fixed Judaism in what he called a semi-mythological past that, in its refusal to change and its ideation of the past as perfect and the present as an abomination, it was not conducive to Jewish survival in the 20th century. He famously wrote that, quote, The ancient authorities are entitled to a vote, but not to a veto, end quote. Yet Reform Judaism, at the opposite end of the spectrum, was for him even worse. He accused the movement of representing, quote, an absolute break with the Judaism of the past, end quote. In contrast to the Orthodox, reform was so obsessed with change and modernity that its principles and practices neglected the social and historical effects that kept Jews together. It too, he said, would lead to the disappearance of Jewish life. Conservative Judaism, in the middle, was closer to his view, but he felt it was also too rigid in its adherence to Jewish law, too opposed to change. Kaplan was a big supporter of settlement in Palestine, but he also said that the Zionists were only concerned with getting Jews to Palestine, so they weren't going to lift a finger to support Jewish life in the diaspora. Then there's the rich philanthropists, who were happy to support individual Jews, but not interested in supporting anything that promoted collective Jewish solidarity. And on and on. Although Kaplan had a lifelong and highly distinguished affiliation with both the Orthodox and Conservative movements, he was also constantly at loggerheads with them. It was time for something new. Mordechai Kaplan believed that a deliberate reconstruction of Jewish life was needed to ensure Jewish survival in modern society, one that would capture the full breadth of Judaism as a civilization. 
Religion, yes, but also the secular, like history, society, culture, ethnicity. He wrote that, quote, The real issue was not how to render our ritual in keeping with the requirements of modern life, but how to get our people sufficiently interested in religion to want a ritual, end quote. He began describing this reconstruction in 1920. It would have three components. One, the interpretation of Jewish tradition in terms of present-day thought. Two, the fostering of the social stability of the Jewish people through the upbuilding of Palestine and the establishment of communal centers of the diaspora. And three, the formation of a code of Jewish practice so that every Jew may know definitely what constitutes loyalty to Judaism. Kaplan insisted that this wasn't a revolution. This wasn't going to be instant, rapid change. He wanted this to be a new school of thought that would permeate through all the different denominations and institutions of Jewish life. And just about the first thing he did was make a demonstration of the practice that he was talking about. On March 18, 1922, in New York City, Kaplan did something bold that hadn't been done before. He had his 13-year-old daughter, Judith, publicly celebrate her bat mitzvah. The Jewish rite of passage, which involves reading from the Torah before the congregation, it had up till then only been allowed for boys. To advocate for the equal inclusion of women in Jewish life, Kaplan looked to both the strong women of the Hebrew Bible and the secular push for women's rights, especially the right to vote. Look, he said, Jewish law had treated women better throughout history than what non-Jewish women experienced. But still, it relegated women to, quote, a lower type of human being than man, end quote. This is what he meant by needing to change Jewish law to reflect our modern era, and his Reconstructionist movement was often at the forefront of women's equality issues in both Jewish and American life. So in doing so, he ended up accomplishing what he didn't want, a whole new denominational movement in Judaism known as Reconstruction. It would come to have its own prayer book, its own Passover Haggadah, its own independent synagogues, and eventually even its own rabbinical school. Although it was always fairly small in terms of numbers, it had an outsized influence on Jewish life and thought. Kaplan's understanding of Judaism as a religious civilization required a new way of looking at things like religion, community, God, chosenness, and, well, everything else. All with an eye towards making it relevant for Jews in modern society, so that they can live a life of purpose and morality. We can pull out some of his viewpoints from his consideration of the story of creation, the beginning of the book of Genesis. This foundational story was tackled by several of our other philosophers this season, Remember Maimonides and his Guide to the Perplexed, the idea for him being that, for the highly educated Jew, there's a contradiction between one's scientific knowledge and whether the stories of the Hebrew Bible can be true, and therefore, which to believe. Of course, by the 20th century, what in Maimonides' days was an elite education was by now fairly straightforward scientific knowledge. And just as Maimonides worried about undermining people's faith, so too did Kaplan acknowledge the danger. He said, quote, To the average person, the opening chapter of the Bible is an obstruction to an appreciation of the Bible as a whole. Finding that the account of creation is at variance with the scientific view of the origin of the world 
he concludes that it can hold out to him very little of spiritual value, end quote. Kaplan criticized the idea that you can reconcile this by applying scientific reasoning to the story. You hear ideas, for instance, that seven days doesn't really mean days, but rather some other vague sense of time, like 7,000 years or seven ages. Kaplan said that's missing the point. He said that what the story of creation is about is setting the reader up for the main theme of the Torah, which is the role of the people of Israel are destined to play in the world. In Kaplan's view, the Torah is telling us that God created a perfect world. But then the next stories introduce evil and the ways in which human beings failed, such as Adam and Eve and the Tower of Babel. Those stories are followed by the selection of Abraham, as, in Kaplan's words, quote, the founder of the people of God, end quote. So Kaplan says that the inference here is that the Jewish people are tasked with, quote, realizing the purpose which God had originally expected to see fulfilled in mankind. The election of Israel is therefore made to appear in the Torah as a last resort of the God who created the world, so as to save his creation from being an utter failure, end quote. So here he refers to Jews as the people of Israel. And this is different from the idea of Jews as a chosen people. They're not chosen, he said, but they do have this special purpose. Quote, The rabbis in later time represent Israel as God's first thought, as his aim and purpose in creating the world. But in the Torah, Israel is created only as a result of a second thought, as it were, after the nations that preceded Israel had proved unable to live up to his law. End quote. Kaplan rejected the idea of chosenness because he thought it led too easily to a sense of superiority and a rejection of those deemed inferior. And he finds support for that in the text of Genesis, in which the Jewish people aren't created first but only come later, after others have failed, with their purpose helping to perfect the world as God created it. We can think about it this way. Chosenness is generally an ethnic designation. If God chose the Jewish people, well, then that gets passed down, parents to children. It's a biological chain. But if this is instead a mission, a purpose, we can individually choose to join and how. This mission-oriented approach allows for great diversity in life, thought, culture, and belief. For Kaplan, unity came not from having the same theological affiliation, but from sharing both a common history and a common spiritual destiny. The term used was peoplehood. It's a movement away from what the Reconstructionist movement calls a community of descent that is defined by biology, and instead towards a community of consent. They note that most people who identify as Jewish today choose to be Jewish, regardless of their background. And thus the emphasis with peoplehood is less on simply being Jewish than in doing Jewish, in whatever diverse way works for you, be it art or literature or music or food or ethics or politics or, you know, your favorite Jewish history podcast. Peoplehood, then, is an essential component of this idea of Judaism as an evolving religious civilization. In Kaplan's view, many different ways of being Jewish within an expansive community of people who understand themselves as Jewish.
Now, let's not forget the religious part of Judaism as a religious civilization. Kaplan did not discount the central importance of religion and its trappings in Jewish life, things like ritual and tradition and God. But he grounded them as part of the collective experience of peoplehood. Quote, We short-circuit religion when we treat it purely as an affair between the individual and God. To function normally, the religious current connecting the individual with God must pass through the life of a people. End quote. Reconstructionist Judaism defines religion as answering the questions of why we are here and what we are called to do. Jewish practice is what brings meaning and connection, what Kaplan called everyday holiness. What practice does is in effect concentrate our minds, force us to become aware of our sense of self, our surroundings, our relationships. Today we might say, live in the moment. And that we do such practices in a community of people likewise forces us to consider that community, to consider those people and who they are, what's going on in their lives, what are their needs. This feeds into the unity of the Jewish people that was so important to Kaplan's conception of peoplehood and civilization. He said, quote, If we read with understanding the prayers we recite in a Jewish service, we would discover that they are meant to be a means of getting us to identify ourselves with the Jewish people and of arousing in us a passionate yearning that our people rise to great spiritual heights, end quote. God, then, for Kaplan, is not a being that we send our prayers to asking for things or that we perform rituals and traditions for. As the Reconstructionist movement puts it, God isn't something or someone to be believed in, but instead experienced in our own lives. Quote, God is the power that animates life, that we discover in the daily expressions of creation that surround us, in the faces of our families and friends, and in the highest strivings of the human spirit. God is not an external being that acts upon us, but a power that works through us, end quote. This was a rejection of what is known as supernaturalism, the idea that God exists outside of nature. For Kaplan in Reconstructionism, God is very much a part of nature, a natural force that works inside us and that therefore should conform to our own sense, our own experiences. This is a very different theological approach than the tradition of God as a miracle worker. And Kaplan imagined all this taking place in a space for worship and gathering like a synagogue, but turbocharged, a Jewish community center where all the cultural elements of Jewish civilization could take place, the secular and religious, a place where art and music would appear alongside ritual and prayer, an institution that would have something for everyone. The historian Robert Seltzer writes that, quote, membership would be strictly voluntary, leadership would be democratically elected, and private religious beliefs would not be infringed upon because diversity in modern Jewish life must be cherished, end quote. If that sounds pretty close to the ingredients underpinning American democracy, well, yes. So we could go on and on down the list, surveying all the ways that Kaplan reimagined every Jewish idea, practice, and approach. The point of all of it is the notion that Judaism had to evolve to survive and had to meet the needs of modern Jews living in modern societies, especially the fast-changing, egalitarian, democratic society that is America. Kaplan said that the collective Jewish experience, quote, must yield meaning for the enrichment of the life of the individual Jew and for the spiritual greatness of the Jewish people, end quote. If anything, the critique of Kaplan is that Reconstructionism placed too much emphasis on the ethnic basis of Jewish peoplehood, 
which as us Americans know all too well, we can be a bit squeamish about. Most American Jews still held to the distinctiveness of Judaism as a religion, like Christians or Muslims, rather than a purely ethnic determination. And so Reconstructionism remained fairly small and not widely followed, even today. But that doesn't diminish Kaplan's impact, in which so many of his ideas were picked up by other movements and institutions. Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove of Park Avenue Synagogue in New York writes that Kaplan's vision has shaped the last 90 years of American Jewish life. Quote, Kaplan's fingerprints are everywhere for those who know where to look, end quote. Most Jews have heard the term peoplehood, or have attended a bat mitzvah, or been to a JCC, or participated in Jewish life in any number of ways. All of these cultural touchstones are enveloped by Kaplan's notion of Judaism as a civilization. Kaplan died at the age of 102 in 1983. All throughout his life, Jewish life and Judaism continued to evolve through the Holocaust and the creation of Israel, the rising of new generations, changing social and cultural values, new religious expressions and theological ideas. His conception of Judaism as an evolving religious civilization allowed those changes to flow through the Jewish people without splitting them apart. Reconstructionism, he said, quote, seeks to put gates through the fences that divide Jews into sects, end quote. Summing up what he meant by all this, he joked about a sign that he once saw in Miami, Florida that advertised kosher Hungarian goulash, Dixie style. So the purpose of this season was to introduce us to some of Judaism's great thinkers. Not an exhaustive list, just 10 interesting philosophers who all made important contributions. You'd think that there would be an identifiable thread running from Hillel the Elder to Mordechai Kaplan. I haven't found one, other than a deep reverence for text, ideas, and study as the way towards truth, understanding, enlightenment, and closeness to God. Each philosopher wrestled with the Torah and placed his scholarship within the time and space in which he lived. Hillel, Philo, and Akiva were products of the ancient Greco-Roman world. Hillel and Akiva stuck close to the Torah, but Philo brought it together with Greek philosophy, uniting for the next 1,500 years reason and revelation as complementary fields of study. Sadia Gaon lived in the Muslim world of the 10th century Middle East, applying Islamic philosophical ideas to the study of Torah. Judah Halevi and Maimonides, Judaism's greatest poet and its greatest philosopher, came out of the clash between Muslim and Catholic Spain and both followed a path that took them to Egypt and at their deaths to the land of Israel. Judah Halevi left a passionate, lasting defense of Judaism at a time of great religious turmoil. Maimonides laid down an accessible system of Jewish law for the next 800 years to our own day. Then there's Isaac Luria in the land of Israel and the Baal Shem Tov in Eastern Europe, who harnessed the power of mystical Judaism, Kabbalah, to inspire ordinary people with the extraordinary, to make every Jew a participant in justice, righteousness, and redemption, tikkun olam, repairing the world. And then we get to Baruch Spinoza in Amsterdam in the 1600s, who rejected basically everything going back to Philo, splitting off revelation from reason to envision a society with freedom of worship, speech, thought, and expression. And then we have Mordechai Kaplan, who in 20th century America lived more or less in such a society, 
and found that Jewish life was in need of reconstruction to continue evolving as a religious civilization. We could take, say, the story of creation in the book of Genesis, as we did, and apply each of these great scholars to that story, which most of these episodes did. Was it literal truth? A metaphor? A symbolic story? An introductory story? A story that illuminates alternative planes of mystical existence? Or just a morality play inspired not by the divine, but by the hand of a clever writer? There's no answer, and there won't be, but there will in the future be new ideas. To stand on the shoulder of giants isn't to declare the work over, but that it continues. So if you are at all, as Maimonides worried, perplexed, well, good. Keep going. All right, so that's a wrap on season six, 10 Jewish Philosophers You Ought to Know, episode number 140. Hope you enjoyed it. This was a fun one to research and write, a great dive into rich elements of Judaism and Jewish life that we don't think about too much, and a great opportunity to add further weight to my creaking bookshelf of heavy tomes. As usual, taking some time off here to work on the next season, season seven, which will be returning to the modern state of Israel, Picking up where season four left off in 1967, I'm finishing up a teaching credential and planning a wedding, so this will either be a nice distraction or, you know, written under fire. Remains to be seen. This season needs a very special thanks to my favorite Jewish philosopher, teacher, friend, and Jew I don't know fan, Rabbi Peretz Wolf Prusan, and a huge, huge thanks to the donors this season who helped keep this educational project going. If you donated, you can find your name if you chose to list it up on my website. And if you're looking to make a nice donation of any amount for the Jewish New Year, look no further than Jew I don't know. And either way, even if you only listened, thank you for listening. We've had over a quarter of a million listens by now. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. This episode is airing on Sunday, September 25th, 2022, and the Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah begins this evening. To all who are celebrating... Shana Tova, and as we say, may you have a happy and sweet new year. www.jewidontknow.com and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all. I'll be back as soon as I can. Lahitra out. See you later.